Chapter 7, Part 3 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, Volume 2 chapter seven duels and ordeals part three when such quarrels as these were looked upon as mere matters of course the state of society must have been indeed awful louis the fourteenth very early saw the evil and as early determined to remedy it it was not however till the year sixteen seventy nine when he instituted the chambre ardente for the trial of the slow poisoners and pretenders to sorcery that he published any edict against duelling in that year his famous edict was promulgated in which he reiterated and confirmed the severe enactments of his predecessors henry the fourth and louis the thirteenth and expressed his determination never to pardon any offender by this celebrated ordinance a supreme court of honor was established composed of the marshals of france they were bound on taking the office to give to every one who brought a well-founded complaint before them such reparation as would satisfy the justice of the case should any gentleman against whom complaint was made refuse to obey the mandate of the court of honor he might be punished by fine and imprisonment and when that was not possible by reason of his absenting himself from the kingdom his estates might be confiscated till his return every man who sent a challenge be the cause of offence what it might was deprived of all redress from the court of honour suspended three years from the exercise of any office in the state was further imprisoned for two years and sentenced to pay a fine of half his yearly income he who accepted a challenge was subject to the same punishment any servant or other person who knowingly became the bearer of a challenge was if found guilty sentenced to stand in the pillory and be publicly whipped for the first offence and for the second sent for three years to the galleys any person who actually fought was to be held guilty of murder even though death did not ensue and was to be punished accordingly persons in the higher ranks of life were to be beheaded and those of the middle class hanged upon a gallows and their bodies refused christian burial at the same time that louis published this severe edict he exacted a promise from his principal nobility that they would never engage in a duel on any pretense whatever he never swerved from his resolution to pursue all duelists with the utmost rigor and many were executed in various parts of the country a slight abatement of the evil was the consequence and in the course of a few years one duel was not fought where twelve had been fought previously a medal was struck to commemorate the circumstance by the express command of the king so much had he this object at heart that in his will he particularly recommended to his successor 
the care of his edict against duelling and warned him against any ill-judged lenity to those who disobeyed it a singular law formerly existed in malta with regard to duelling by this law it was permitted but only upon condition that the parties should fight in one particular street if they presumed to settle their quarrel elsewhere they were held guilty of murder and punished accordingly what was also very singular they were bound under heavy penalties to put up their swords when requested to do so by a priest a knight or a woman it does not appear however that the ladies or the knights exercised this mild and beneficent privilege to any great extent the former were too often themselves the cause of duels and the latter sympathized too much in the wounded honor of the combatants to attempt to separate them the priests alone were the great peacemakers brydon says that a cross was always painted on the wall opposite to the spot where a knight had been killed and that in the street of duels he counted about twenty of them in england the private duel was also practised to a scandalous extent towards the end of the sixteenth and beginning of the seventeenth centuries the judicial combat now began to be more rare but several instances of it are mentioned in history one was instituted in the reign of elizabeth and another so late as the time of charles i sir henry spellman gives an account of that which took place in elizabeth's reign which is curious perhaps the more so when we consider that it was perfectly legal and that similar combats remained so till the year eighteen nineteen a proceeding having been instituted in the court of common pleas for the recovery of certain manorial rights in the county of kent the defendant offered to prove by single combat his right to retain possession the plaintiff accepted the challenge and the court having no power to stay the proceedings agreed to the champions who were to fight in lieu of the principals the queen commanded the parties to compromise but it being represented to her majesty that they were justified by law in the course they were pursuing she allowed them to proceed on the day appointed the justices of the common pleas and all the counsel engaged in the cause appeared as umpires of the combat at a place in tothill fields where the lists had been prepared the champions were ready for the encounter and the plaintiff and defendant were publicly called to come forward and acknowledge them the defendant answered to his name and recognized his champion with the due formalities but the plaintiff did not appear without his presence and authority the combat could not take place and his absence being considered an abandonment of his claim he was declared to be non-suited and barred forever from renewing his suit before any other tribunal whatever the queen appears to have disapproved personally of this mode of settling a disputed claim but her judges and legal advisers made no attempt to alter the barbarous law the practice of private duelling excited more indignation from its being of everyday occurrence in the time of james i 
the english were so infected with the french madness that bacon when he was attorney-general lent the aid of his powerful eloquence to effect a reformation of the evil informations were exhibited in the star chamber against two persons named priest and wright for being engaged as principal and second in a duel on which occasion he delivered a charge that was so highly approved of by the lords of the council that they ordered it to be printed and circulated over the country as a thing quote, very meet and worthy to be remembered and made known unto the world end quote. he began by considering the nature and greatness of the mischief of duelling it troubleth peace it disfurnisheth war it bringeth calamity upon private men peril upon the state and contempt upon the law touching the cause of it he observed that the first motive of it no doubt is a false and erroneous imagination of honour and credit but then the seed of this mischief being such it is nourished by vain discourses and green and unripe conceits hereunto may be added that men have almost lost the true notion and understanding of fortitude and valour for fortitude distinguisheth of the grounds of quarrel whether they be just and not only so but whether they be worthy and setteth a better price upon men's lives than to bestow them idly nay it is weakness and disesteem of a man's self to put a man's life upon such leisure performances a man's life is not to be trifled with it is to be offered up and sacrificed to honourable services public merits good causes and noble adventures it is in expense of blood as it is in expense of money it is no liberality to make a profusion of money upon every vain occasion neither is it fortitude to make effusion of blood except the cause of it be worth the most remarkable event connected with duelling in this reign was that between lord sanquir a scotch nobleman and one turner a fencing-master in a trial of skill between them his lordship's eye was accidentally thrust out by the point of turner's sword turner expressed great regret at the circumstance and lord sanquir bore his loss with as much philosophy as he was master of and forgave his antagonist three years afterwards lord sanquir was at paris where he was a constant visitor at the court of henry the fourth one day in the course of conversation the affable monarch inquired how he had lost his eye sanquir who prided himself on being the most expert swordsman of the age blushed as he replied that it was inflicted by the sword of a fencing master henry forgetting his assumed character of an anti-duelist carelessly and as a mere matter of course inquired whether the man lived nothing more was said but the query sank deep into the proud heart of the scotch baron who returned shortly afterwards to england burning for revenge his first intent was to challenge the fencing-master to single combat 
but on further consideration he deemed it inconsistent with his dignity to meet him as an equal in fair and open fight he therefore hired two bravos who set upon the fencing-master and murdered him in his own house at whitefriars the assassins were taken and executed and a reward of one thousand pounds offered for the apprehension of their employer lord sanquir concealed himself for several days and then surrendered to take his trial in the hope happily false that justice would belie her name and be lenient to a murderer because he was a nobleman who on a false point of honour had thought fit to take revenge into his own hands the most powerful intercessions were employed in his favour but james to his credit was deaf to them all bacon in his character of attorney-general prosecuted the prisoner to conviction and he died the felon's death on the twenty ninth of june sixteen twelve on a gibbet erected in front of the gate of westminster hall with regard to the public duel or trial by battle demanded under the sanction of the law to terminate a quarrel which the ordinary course of justice could with difficulty decide bacon was equally opposed to it and thought that in no case should it be granted he suggested that there should be declared a constant and settled resolution in the state to abolish it altogether that care should be taken that the evil be no more cockered nor the humour of it fed but that all persons found guilty should be rigorously punished by the star chamber and those of eminent quality banished from the court in the succeeding reign when donald mackay the first lord rie accused david ramsay of treason in being concerned with the marquis of hamilton in a design upon the crown of scotland he was challenged by the latter to make good his assertion by single combat it had been at first the intention of the government to try the case by the common law but ramsay thought he would stand a better chance of escape by recurring to the old and almost exploded custom but which was still the right of every man in appeals of treason lord rie readily accepted the challenge and both were confined in the tower until they found security that they would appear on a certain day appointed by the court to determine the question the management of the affair was delegated to the mariscal court of westminster and the earl of lindsay was created lord constable of england for the purpose shortly before the day appointed ramsay confessed in substance all that lord rie had laid to his charge upon which charles i put a stop to the proceedings but in england about this period sterner disputes arose among men than those mere individual matters which generate duels the men of the commonwealth encouraged no practice of the kind and the subdued aristocracy carried their habits and prejudices elsewhere and fought their duels at foreign courts cromwell's parliament however although the evil at that time was not so crying published an order in sixteen fifty four for the prevention of duels and the punishment of all concerned in them charles the second on his restoration also issued a proclamation upon the subject 
in his reign an infamous duel was fought infamous not only from its own circumstances but from the lenity that was shown to the principal offenders the worthless duke of buckingham having debauched the countess of shrewsbury was challenged by her husband to mortal combat in january sixteen sixty eight charles the second endeavoured to prevent the duel not from any regard to public morality but from fear for the life of his favourite he gave commands to the duke of albemarle to confine buckingham to his house or take some other measures to prevent him from fighting albemarle neglected the order thinking that the king himself might prevent the combat by some surer means the meeting took place at barn elms the injured shrewsbury being attended by sir john talbot his relative and lord bernard howard son of the earl of arundel buckingham was accompanied by two of his dependents captain holmes and sir john jenkins according to the barbarous custom of the age not only the principals but the seconds engaged each other jenkins was pierced to the heart and left dead upon the field and sir john talbot severely wounded in both arms buckingham himself escaping with slight wounds ran his unfortunate antagonist through the body and then left the field with the wretched woman the cause of all the mischief who in the dress of a page awaited the issue of the conflict in a neighbouring wood holding her paramour's horse to avoid suspicion great influence was exerted to save the guilty parties from punishment and the master as base as the favourite made little difficulty in granting a free pardon to all concerned in a royal proclamation issued shortly afterwards charles the second formally pardoned the murderers but declared his intention never to extend in future any mercy to such offenders it would be hard after this to say who was the most infamous the king the favourite or the courtesan in the reign of queen anne repeated complaints were made of the prevalence of duelling addison swift steele and other writers employed their powerful pens in reprobation of it steele especially in the tatler and guardian exposed its impiety and absurdity and endeavoured both by argument and by ridicule to bring his countrymen to a right way of thinking his comedy of the conscious lovers contains an admirable exposure of the abuse of the word honour which led men into an error so lamentable swift writing upon the subject remarked that he could see no harm in rogues and fools shooting each other addison and steele took higher ground and the latter in the guardian summed up nearly all that could be said upon the subject in the following impressive words Quote, a christian and a gentleman are made inconsistent appellations of the same person you are not to expect eternal life if you do not forgive injuries and your mortal life is rendered uncomfortable if you are not ready to commit a murder in resentment of an affront for good sense as well as religion is so utterly banished the world that men glory in their very passions and pursue trifles with the utmost vengeance so little do they know that to forgive is the most arduous pitch human nature can arrive at 
coward has often fought a coward has often conquered but a coward never forgave steele also published a pamphlet in which he gave a detailed account of the edict of louis the fourteenth and the measures taken by that monarch to cure his subjects of their murderous folly on the eighth of may seventeen eleven sir cholmley deering m p for the county of kent was slain in a duel by mr richard thornhill also a member of the house of commons three days afterwards sir peter king brought the subject under the notice of the legislature and after dwelling at considerable length on the alarming increase of the practice obtained leave to bring in a bill for the prevention and punishment of duelling it was read a first time that day and ordered for a second reading in the ensuing week about the same time the attention of the upper house of parliament was also drawn to the subject in the most painful manner two of its most noted members would have fought had it not been that queen anne received notice of their intention and exacted a pledge that they would desist while a few months afterwards two other of its members lost their lives in one of the most remarkable duels upon record the first affair which happily terminated without a meeting was between the duke of marlborough and the earl paulet the latter and fatal encounter was between the duke of hamilton and lord mohun the first arose out of a debate in the lords upon the conduct of the duke of ormond in refusing to hazard a general engagement with the enemy in which earl paulet remarked that nobody could doubt the courage of the duke of ormond Quote, he was not like a certain general who led troops to the slaughter to cause great numbers of officers to be knocked on the head in a battle or against stone walls in order to fill his pockets by disposing of their commissions everyone felt that the remark was aimed at the duke of marlborough but he remained silent though evidently suffering in mind soon after the house broke up the earl paulet received a visit from lord mohun who told him that the duke of marlborough was anxious to come to an explanation with him relative to some expressions he had made use of in that day's debate and therefore prayed him to quote, go and take a little air in the country end quote. earl paulet did not affect to misunderstand the hint but asked him in plain terms whether he brought a challenge from the duke lord mohun said his message needed no explanation and that he lord mohun would accompany the duke of marlborough he then took his leave and earl paulet returned home and told his lady that he was going out to fight a duel with the duke of marlborough his lady alarmed for her lord's safety gave notice of his intention to the earl of dartmouth who immediately in the queen's name sent to the duke of marlborough and commanded him not to stir abroad he also caused earl paulet's house to be guarded by two sentinels and having taken these precautions informed the queen of the whole affair her majesty sent at once for the duke expressed her abhorrence of the custom of duelling and required his word of honour that he would proceed no further the duke pledged his word accordingly and the affair terminated the lamentable duel between the duke of hamilton and lord mohun took place in november seventeen twelve and sprang from the following circumstances 
a lawsuit had been pending for eleven years between these two noblemen and they looked upon each other in consequence with a certain degree of coldness they met together on the thirteenth of november in the chambers of mr orlebar a master in chancery when in the course of conversation the duke of hamilton reflected upon the conduct of one of the witnesses in the cause saying that he was a person who had neither truth nor justice in him lord mohun somewhat nettled at this remark applied to a witness favorable to his side made answer hastily that mr whiteworth the person alluded to had quite as much truth and justice in him as the duke of hamilton the duke made no reply and no one present imagined that he took offence at what was said and when he went out of the room he made a low and courteous salute to the lord mohun in the evening general mccartney called twice upon the duke with a challenge from lord mohun and failing in seeing him sought him a third time at a tavern where he found him and delivered his message the duke accepted the challenge and the day after the morrow which was sunday the fifteenth of november at seven in the morning was appointed for the meeting at that hour they assembled in hyde park the duke being attended by his relative colonel hamilton and the lord mohun by general mccartney they jumped over a ditch into a place called the nursery and prepared for the combat the duke of hamilton turning to general mccartney said quote, sir you are the cause of this let the event be what it will end quote. lord mohun did not wish that the seconds should engage but the duke insisted that quote, mccartney should have a share in the dance end quote. all being ready the two principals took up their positions and fought with swords so desperately that after a short time they both fell down mortally wounded the lord mohun expired upon the spot and the duke of hamilton in the arms of his servants as they were carrying him to his coach this unhappy termination caused the greatest excitement not only in the metropolis but all over the country the tories grieved at the loss of the duke of hamilton charged the fatal combat on the whig party whose leader the duke of marlborough had so recently set the example of political duels they called lord mohun the bully of the whig faction he had already killed three men in duels and been twice tried for murder and asserted openly that the quarrel was concocted between him and general mccartney to rob the country of the services of the duke of hamilton by murdering him it was also asserted that the wound of which the duke died was not inflicted by lord mohun but by mccartney and every means was used to propagate this belief colonel hamilton against whom and mccartney the coroner's jury had returned a verdict of wilful murder surrendered a few days afterwards and was examined before a privy council sitting at the house of lord dartmouth he then deposed that seeing lord mohun fall and the duke upon him he ran to the duke's assistance and that he might with the more ease help him he flung down both their swords and as he was raising the duke up he saw mccartney make a push at him upon this deposition a royal proclamation was immediately issued offering a reward of five hundred pounds for the apprehension of mccartney 
to which the duchess of hamilton afterwards added a reward of three hundred pounds upon the further examination of colonel hamilton it was found that reliance could not be placed on all his statements and that he contradicted himself in several important particulars he was arraigned at the old bailey for the murder of lord mohun the whole political circles of london being in a fever of excitement for the result all the tory party prayed for his acquittal and a tory mob surrounded the doors and all the avenues leading to the court of justice for many hours before the trial began the examination of witnesses lasted seven hours the criminal still persisted in accusing general mccartney of the murder of the duke of hamilton but in other respects say the newspapers of the day prevaricated foully he was found guilty of manslaughter this favorable verdict was received with universal applause quote, not only from the court and all the gentlemen present but the common people showed a mighty satisfaction which they testified by loud and repeated huzzas as the popular delirium subsided and men began to reason coolly upon the subject they disbelieved the assertions of colonel hamilton that mccartney had stabbed the duke although it was universally admitted that he had been much too busy and presuming hamilton was shunned by all his former companions and his life rendered so irksome to him that he sold out of the guards and retired to private life in which he died heartbroken four years afterwards general mccartney surrendered about the same time and was tried for murder in the court of king's bench he was however found guilty of manslaughter only End of chapter seven part three recording by linda johnson